Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout-out to the reformed members of Back to Ashes. Samantha Place, Lisa Radford, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Mana Ash, Norman D.W., Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's niece. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes, that information can be found below. I would also like to thank everyone who has donated to my GoFundMe. I am still accepting donations until I can find a new nest. That link to the GoFundMe can also also be found below. If you're out of the loop, please visit my channel under the community tab to find all the information. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in to get warm, and enjoy this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Hordes of Scary Stories. Included in this video is a very dear friend of mine, my brother and whore, Silver Slumbers. Right after this intro, an ad will play. Silver will read the first story and ad will play and after that there will be no more ads within the video if you enjoy silver's narration please check the description and show him some love by subscribing to his page let's get started shall we i grew up in a small town total population was maybe 2000 Everyone knew everyone else, or at least knew your family members. It was a safe town, with mostly middle-class working families. Nothing major ever happened, and the crime rates were very low. I grew up feeling safe and secure. To note, I grew up in the 90s. One summer day, my good friend Jenny and I were out bike riding. We were 11 or 12 years old. We were allowed to bike anywhere we wanted, as long as we didn't leave our town and wore our helmets. There was a new road being constructed in between the two main neighborhoods. The new road was to provide a shorter way of accessing the main road to get to the next town. At the time, the road was still under construction, but was nearly completed. All that was left was paving and painting. Jenny and I decided to go bike down the gravel road. Jenny and I were about halfway down the road. The road was about a kilometer long. At the halfway point, we noticed a man walking. He was nearly 30s and very handsome. I didn't recognize him and Jenny didn't either. As we got closer, he broke out into a big smile and said hello. We said hello back, as he didn't seem threatening or scary. He asked us if we were having a good summer, and we said yes. He told Jenny and I that he was a photographer from a nearby city and was in town to scout out models for his next postcard company. 
He said, Jenny and I had the most beautiful features. He said everything was in a very flattering way that made us feel special. He said that we could be models. He asked if he could take our pictures. He said that we had uh, the new look that he wanted and we were in the perfect scenery with our bikes. He said he knows that he will sell tons of postcards and we can make some money out of it too. Jenny and I, of course, agreed. He got us a stand with both of her hands on her hips and smiled big. He took a disposable camera out of his back pocket and began snapping photos. He took about 10 photos in total from many angles. I remember feeling a little uneasy and said that we should probably go because we needed to be home soon. He said that he would get in touch with our principal on the first day of school to give us some money from the postcard sales. We foolishly confirmed that we went to a local elementary school, though it was the only elementary school in town, so it wouldn't be hard to find neither Jenny or I to remember. So we give him our names. This is an important detail for later. Jenny and I talked about becoming famous on our way home. I told Jenny that I was wondering why he didn't pull out a professional camera. She said she wanted that too, but we both agreed that cameras are expensive, so maybe he didn't have a nice one with them in case it rained. That evening at supper, I told my parents about my potential new fame. They were horrified and got onto the phone with Jenny's parents. The two sets of parents called police and gave statements. The police sort of downplayed it and said that it was very unusual, but nothing criminal had happened. My parents had a long talk with me about safety, as did Jenny's parents with her. The following spring, Jenny and I were hanging out together. This time, a little older and a little wiser and a lot more cautious. We were walking along the quiet side street, just talking about music and TV shows. A minivan approached us and slowed down. A friendly looking woman asked us if we knew where Smith's Road was. We told her that she just needed to drive straight for less than a minute and it's the first right-hand turn. She said she was having difficult finding it, and would we mind hopping in and showing her? I instantly said no. Jenny also declined. Then, the woman said it was okay because she knows who we are. She called us both by our first name and said that she saw us on her postcard. By now, we were both freaked out. We were on the stretch of the road that had no houses. The nearest one was about 100 meters away. It wasn't common for people to have cell phones back then, so neither Jenny or I had one. The woman continued to ask us to get into her minivan. Jenny, who was normally super chatty, was staring into the vehicle intensely. Her body language was stiff, and I could tell that she was scared. Suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere, Jenny screamed, Run! I didn't understand what was happening, but I ran and followed Jenny. We ran off the road and through a field and into a yard another street over. I recognized the yard and house was belonging to a school teacher. We pounded on her door and she answered. We told her what happened 
And then Jenny said something that I will never forget. She said she saw the photographer man from the last summer crouching down in the very back row of the seats. She said that she knew something bad was about to happen. Police and our parents were called. We gave statements in a vehicle description as well as descriptions of the man and woman. Unfortunately, the police were never able to locate them. Jenny and I never saw them again. We had some serious trust issues with strangers after those encounters, and I had nightmares of being kidnapped into my early adulthood. Always make sure to teach your children that strangers are not safe, no matter how nice they are. My situation could have been much more unfortunate outcome if things had gone even slightly different. Those two people I sincerely hope to never meet again. The ripening stench of decay hit him as soon as the doors of the derelict building creaked open. Dear God, Thomas Mason remarked to himself, that is foul. He strapped on a mask and proceeded up through the metal framework, stepping carefully over rubble and crumbling stairs. Up and up towards the source of the smell. It was a body, a rope around its neck dangling in the rafters. A pendulum of rot. Thomas had discovered the corpse yesterday on one of his urban explorations. He hadn't told anyone else, though he wasn't sure why. Morbid curiosity, maybe? It was really strange that one would make their way all the way out here to hang themselves. The whole place was strange. It was covered in what must have been some kind of artwork. They looked to be some kind of symbol. Upon closer examination, he saw there were Mobius strips of symbol of eternity. Who drew them, he wondered. How did anyone pass through here without noticing the body? That didn't make sense to him. Why the Mobius strip? That was when he noticed the strange symbols carved into the corpse's hands. Was this something ritualistic? Had he painted these here, carved those symbols into his hands? There were more. Writing next to the paintings, it seemed that one must shed the flesh beneath these scarred stars and gain eternal life. This definitely had to be the rambling delusions of a lunatic. Still, his curiosity was definitely piqued. He returned, hoping it hadn't been discovered yet. Sure enough, it swung their swollen tongue, blackened face, eyes bugging out. He sat down on a ledge a few inches from it and stared intensely at it. As if by scanning it up and down, he might find something out. It seemed to stare back at him. This unnerved him some, but he still continued to study it. There was a strange sound just then. Wet, ripping, and snapping of bones. The corpse turned its head to face Thomas. There is nothing beyond, it gasped. Nothing but the stagnation. Nothing but the endless void. 
I am trapped in this purgatory. Now you shall join me. The corpse grabbed Thomas's arm and hurled him down to his death below. Until a few days ago, I had no idea that this actually happened to me. I'm not going to talk about the gruesome, indirect circumstances that triggered this to start haunting me in flashbacks, but I'd rather focus on the story itself, how I remembered it, and how my cousin, who was with me when it happened, remembers it. For some context, my cousin and I are the same age. We are both women, and currently 25 years old. She's only five days younger than me, and her family rented a floor in my parents' house when we were toddlers. So we basically did everything together and spent all our days together until we turned five when her family bought an apartment in another city, some like 30 kilometers away from the city that I lived in. Since we had a very strong connection, almost code pens, it was very difficult for us to get used to not living together. And two years later, we had made an agreement with our parents that we will visit each other each weekend and during the summer break. She will spend one week at our place and I will spend the other week at their place. And we will basically exchange like that until the end of the summer break. This went on for years. Since we were spending all our free time together, by the time we turned 10 or 11, we have already exhausted all of our adventure ideas in the backyard. Tree climbing, building a tree house, sitting up tents, camping in the backyard, etc. And we really needed something new, so we have decided to go fishing together every Friday on the river near my house. It's a 20-minute walk. Now, of course, we had no tools needed for true fishing experience. We had a butterfly net that we would place in the water, and on a good day, we would catch a dozen tiny fish with it. That was enough for our restaurant game. We would come back home, bake the fish under the sunlight, and then serve it and decorate it in plastic plates that we would later serve to our imaginary customers. We've done this for weeks and always make sure that we were actually safe while doing it. We never actually got into the river and that it wasn't that difficult since it was a very peaceful neighborhood. We call it the Yellow Bridge and there was usually no one else there at the river at the time that we were there. One day, it was different. Very different. How I remembered it. A couple of days ago, the memory of this encounter suddenly spilled into my mind. We were either 10 or 11 years old, and it was a Friday. She was at our place that week, so we took the butterfly net and went fishing into the river. We were alone sitting under a large willow tree right next to the river. Suddenly, a man showed up out of nowhere. He was standing a couple of meters away from us. He had a blackish hair with plenty shades of gray, so I'm guessing he was in his late 40s or early 50s. He had a dark blue t-shirt, a little smudge on the collar. He asked us what we were doing, and we said that we were fishing. He continued walking back and forth on the part of the shore. Now, under the yellow bridge, the shore itself is about 
at least 500 meters long. He could have gone anywhere, but he stayed where we were at. Then he came a little closer and we got up. He told us that he was having issues with his wife and we just nodded our heads, trying to avoid the conversation and follow the don't talk to strangers rule. We didn't ask him anything. He took a flip phone out of his pocket and opened it in front of us. I have to show you my wife, he said. Okay, we replied. He came even closer and turned the phone towards us. It was a picture of a completely nude woman sitting in a chair with her legs spread apart. We just nodded. He then proceeded to show us more pictures and it was quite clear that it wasn't his wife because the pictures weren't of the same woman, but all of them were nude from head to toe with their legs spread in a very provocative way or in other very suggestive positions. Now that I think about it, the quality of the images, the fashion, and the aesthetics could be best described as orange YouTube content from the 70s. It could be that he took the pictures from some old magazine or had them sent by someone. I remember that I looked at my cousin in mouth. That's not his wife. And she nodded. Isn't she beautiful? He asked. She, she is, I replied. And my cousin nodded. We then remembered that we left our net in the river. So we went back to the willow tree and reached for the net. He was standing there in the same spots as before, looking at his phone. He then showed us a very low quality picture of two nude men and then another nude woman. This picture actually looked like pictures taken with a flip phone camera. That's me, he said, and pointed at one of the men in the picture. We just nodded and said that we had to go home. He then said the words that have been haunting me for days now. You think my wife is beautiful? She thinks you are beautiful too. She would love to meet you. Come with me to meet her. No, we have to go home, I replied. You are a party breaker. Maybe your friend doesn't want to go home. Come on, he said and turned to my cousin. No, I really want to go home, my cousin replied. This is where the details of the memory stop. What I remember next is him giving up, not being there anymore, and us leaving giggling and laughing as we walked away, mocking his voice and his tone on our way back home. I found it weird that only after so many years that I have remembered the situation and I brushed it off as a potential dream or a false memory. But since his words kept echoing my head, I called my cousin and ascribed my memory, word for word as I described it here. And she said that it did happen. Just slightly different from how I remembered it. This is how my cousin remembered it. It happened. All the details are correct, but once she told him that she really wants to go home, he gets way too close, and we were scared to start running or turning our backs since we thought that he can catch us, so we stayed there for a little while. He kept pretending like that he was not there. We played with our catch, the tiny fish in the bucket filled with water and talked about her fathers who work in the police. Obviously, it was a lie. Her father is a forest ranger and mine works in IT and how they're so strong 
that they can kill a man with one punch. The man didn't believe or exaggerate his story, and he kept walking in circles around us. Not too close, but he did keep an eye on us the entire time. And we waited, and waited, and waited. And at one point, he went into the bushes right behind us to pee. This is when we got up and started running. We ran across the bridge and kept running around until we got to the part of the neighborhood where there was lots of houses. When we were already close to my house, I stopped in the middle of the road and said that my legs won't move. So she helped me get down on the other side of the road, and we sat there until I felt better. Today, I know what I experienced was a state of shock. Once I felt better, we went back home, threw away the fish, and decided to never go fishing again. We never told our parents because we knew that what happened has something to do with intercourse. And at the time, we thought that everything related to intercourse is shameful and something that we should not be talking about. She said that she's surprised that I thought that it was a dream and that I didn't remember it till now. Since I had such an extreme reaction, and she had PTSD from that event. Even today, she's not going anywhere alone and is terrified whenever someone mentions the Yellow Bridge. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I know people say this all the time, but I'm actually telling the truth. And this is a true story. A couple of nights ago, I got up to use the restroom like I always do since I had a bad habit of drinking everything before I go to bed, shaking my head. Anyway, I usually don't turn on any lights when I get up at night because I live alone in a small one-bedroom apartment and I know where everything is. Plus, I hate it when that blinding thing happens when you turn on lights after you've been asleep. So, on this particular night, I decided to use my phone as a nightlight to keep an eye out for any creepy crawlies because I had seen one a few days prior and didn't want any surprises in the dark, you know? Now... Because I'm normally half asleep, I usually just do my business and go right back to bed. But since I had my phone with me, I catered to that addiction we all have and checked for the latest updates. I must have been really distracted because I remember telling myself, Enough already. Get back to bed. And then I quickly got up, washed my hands, and turned to go back to my room. And then I saw it. I had to blink a couple of times, and I just stood there in the doorway of my room, staring. At that time, I was too confused to be scared, but now that I think about it, 
I know I probably should have been freaking out that my bedroom light was on. Remember, I don't turn on lights late at night. And the thing is, this particular light is a touch light, so it has to be touched to come on. I know I didn't turn the light on when I got up because it's in a narrow spot beside the bed on the opposite side of where I sleep and where the door is. But here's what did scare me. Just as I was about to walk into my room to check it out, something caught my eye in the hallway towards my living room, which made me quickly look in that direction. For a split second, I thought I was just imagining it and that I was scaring myself. But then, I heard the creaking sounds my floor makes when you step on a certain spot. The only way that sound can be made is if someone is walking on it. And I was alone that night. Of course, by then, I was freaking out. But, for some reason, I didn't want to let it know that I was scared. So I ignored the sound and went to get in bed. I was too afraid to reach down and turn the light off, so I let it stay on for a few minutes. After a while, I started getting creeped out again and decided to look around my apartment to make sure I was alone. I found the last ounce of bravery I had and got out of bed. I looked in my closets, under the bed, and in the living room. Nothing. I made sure the doors and windows were locked and quickly went back to bed. Miraculously, I got the nerve to turn the light off. I was pretty tired, so I ended up dozing off, but after a while, something made me wake up suddenly. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The light was back on. This time, I hurriedly reached down, turned the light off once more, and hid under the covers, waiting to see if it would happen again. Eventually, I fell asleep again, and when I woke up, it was morning and the light was still off. I was slightly relieved, but still disturbed. Later that day, I called my boyfriend to tell him what happened, and asked him to spend the night. He did, and two days later, it happened again. I had gotten up to use the restroom at around six in the morning, and his movement woke me up. As soon as he was gone, the light came on, by itself. I was awake this time and absolutely frozen with fear. When he got back, I told him it had just happened again, but he thought I was joking around and turned the light off. I was terrified at this point, but I didn't know what else to do. I must have fallen back asleep because the next thing I remember was seeing the daylight and my boyfriend walking out of the room, closing the door behind him. I was relieved that it was daylight and that the light was still off. So I closed my eyes to get a few more minutes of sleep. But just as I was drifting off, it happened again. Now I'm pissed. I sat straight up, yelled, Stop it! And then lay back down. The light hasn't come back on by itself as of yet. 
but I think it's because my boyfriend is still here. I still don't know how the light came on. Faulty wires, maybe? Could be. But then, how do you explain the shadow and creaking floor? Another body was found just one day ago. The victim is a middle-aged male of Caucasian descent. This is the fourth victim in the past week. Law enforcement are no longer trying to find out who is behind this, but they are finding a pattern. Local police have suggested that residents of the area keep their car doors locked and drive past anyone on the side of the road. We will update you as soon as more information becomes available. I switched the radio station and sat back in my seat. I read about these killings in the paper. They seem to have happened within 10 miles of each other. Whoever is up to this is pretty careful since they don't want to be tracked. The sun finally vanished and my headlights and the moon illuminated the road. It may seem odd that I'm driving around at night in the darkness. But I don't mind it. I usually go on a late night drive to clear my head after a long day of work. An hour passed and I was heading back home. I still had a while before I would be close to my neighborhood. That's when I saw him. There was a guy standing outside his car on the side of the road. I know it's stupid, but I pulled over to help him. I got out and walked over to him. Having car troubles? I asked, taking a look at the engine. Yep, I had no idea what was wrong with it. It would seem so. Damn thing broke down. Don't worry, I can just wait for a tow truck, the man replied. No need for that. I can drive you to the nearest auto shop. Plus, it's getting quite cold outside. Please, uh, I insist, I said. The man would stand there for a second before nodding in response and following me to my car. Hear about those killings? I asked, trying to spark conversation. Not the best topic, but it was all I could think about. Quite a dangerous area our city has become. He shifted in his seat as if uncomfortable with the situation. Twenty minutes later, I pulled over near some woods. One second, uh, I gotta take a whiz, I said. The man waited in the front seat with no response. I walked into the woods a bit only to circle back to the side of the car out of sight. I waited there for a few minutes. The guy got out of the car to look for me. Damn, it took long enough. I stepped forward quietly and drove a knife into his neck. His voice left him as the sound of air left his throat. Shh, it's all over now. Don't you know to not accept rides from shady people? I asked. One more body to take care of. I honestly just wanted to see how desperate people were. It's fun catching them at a moment of extreme inconvenience. So, back when I was younger, I used to work with a magician who, in my honest opinion, was really, really good. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not a fanboy or anything. I just felt that if I could make more money with more of a professional, it would be worth my time. The legality of my prior occupations were, well, we will just say frowned upon. 
So let's imagine for a moment that magic is real, but it's a lot more scientific and nature-based than you think really. Asking for a little help from other entities to hide a coin here and place a card there, sidewalk bar tricks that you could do with sleight of hand, but actual magic is a lot more profitable, well, in the human dimension anyways. Sir Marvelous Camelot approached me after another one of my successful shows, presenting a puppy to a little girl whose family just lost their beloved dog and upgrading an engagement ring for a couple. It brought in lots of oohs and ahs and donations to the United Sidewalk Magician Fund. I try to perform as little as possible, as to not upset too many of the other acts. Though there have been times where the envy has worked in my favor, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, you there, young lad, may I ask you a question? A voice that reeked of confidence and mischief said behind me. I was immediately on edge, usually, and I had more getaway time after my act. Am I getting careless? Uh, can I help you, Mr. Sir? Sir Marvelous Camelot, an above-average height man with a white beard whose eyes were green, like almost glowing. His voice was inquisitive and wise, like the Highlander Yoda guy. I look at him incredulously and say, You were knighted by Queen Elizabeth? No, King George IV, he smiles and asks. So, what do you use as a conduit for your power? He pulls at his mustache and flips his can onto his shoulder. <laughs> no habla inglés, señor. I say on my hill as I dart into an alley. I take out my switchblade and draw blood from the conduit tattooed on my forearm. Reaching into my coat pocket, I search for my wolf's vein, but when I pull my leg up to grab my lighter, a loud flick of a zippo echoes from the dark of the alley. My dear boy, you are good, but I think I have you outmatched today, Sir Camelot says, with his face lit up by the red flame of my lighter. I cough and produce an any-strike match. Let the games begin, I suppose. I am locked in my bathroom, water from the shower and sink running while pull harder on the strings of your martyr blasts in my noise-canceling headphones. No matter what I do or how much I try to block it out, I can only hear the sound of my wife's sinister laughter. It started when my wife called me while I was walking home and told me she had a relapse. She was crying and I did my best to tell her that it was okay, that we all stumble on the path to recovery. Lord knows I did. Her breathing became labored and I heard an audible thud. I ran the rest of the way home and administered the Narcan internasally when I found her on the bathroom floor. It worked and I took her to the hospital in an Uber. She recovered and we started going to our NA meetings again. Things were going well for a while, until I noticed her smile was different. It lacked any emotion and was just creepy as hell. I even caught her staring at me one night 
a facsimile of a smile on her face when I adjusted myself in bed. It made me highly uncomfortable, but I tried my hardest to ignore it and go back to sleep. Things only got worse from there. My wife started drawing smiley faces on every surface she could reach, and when I confronted her about it, she just laughed. Just like her smile, the faces lacked any emotion. I waited until she was asleep to start wiping them away, but they were all back the following day. Maybe she doodled them again while I was sleeping, but why? I came home tonight to find that smiley faces had been doodled on every single surface possible, including the ceiling. I called out to my wife, but the only response was maniacal laughter that sounded like it was coming from everywhere. I looked at the stick figure faces and saw them laughing, charcoal tears streaming from their pinprick eyes. I ran into the bathroom to vomit and heard my wife's unmistakable laughter. I locked the door and have been in here since. There's a syringe on the sink now, and my wife's voice echoes through my head, telling me to join her, to laugh with her. I was doing so well, but the temptation is becoming too great now, and I want to be in on the joke, too. Dear Dad, you never liked me anyway, did you? Don't deny it. I saw it since we first met. I was ten at the time. My real dad had run away like a coward with his tail between his legs. He didn't want anything to do with me anymore. When you came, I was overjoyed. I thought I could finally have a loving family, like everybody else in my life. I couldn't be more wrong. You always looked at me in disgust, like I was something on your shoe that you wanted to throw away. You took every opportunity to humiliate and dehumanize me, from making me walk naked out into the streets to selling my most prized possessions so you could go buy beer. Then, when you came home drunk, you always used me as a punching bag. Then, to make matters worse, you turned my mother against me. We were a team, my mother and I, until you came along. You lured her over with compliments and presents. You twisted my words to make it your truth. Warned her about me. She fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. She started punishing me for the most minor of things. Started kicking me out of the house more often for no reason. I wandered around the streets, cold and hungry. Stared into the windows at families, laughing in front of their fireplace and sharing a hot meal. Well, Dad, when you kick a dog, the dog always bites back. Who did you think really killed the love of your life? It was so easy. All I did was to wait until you were drunk and Mom was asleep. It was even easier to put the knife in your hand and smear her blood all over your palms, to scream for help to the police. Both of us know what happened next. We both read the reports. I was there in the courtroom when they delivered the verdict. 
I saw your tears fall. I saw the panic on your face. I saw you beg for your life, your innocence. I did not have an ounce of sympathy for you. Evidence was stacked against you anyway. I am delighted to see you rot in jail. In fact, you inspired me to continue. With you out of the way, I am free to do what I've always hungered to do. I always do pairs. Husband and wife. Mom and dad. Kill one and frame the other. My personal favorite is when I stuffed her entire life savings and jewelry down his throat. She was caught, eventually. I wasn't. But this isn't about my glamorous life now. This is about you. You made me the way I am now. Every day I suffered. <laughs> but I came out stronger. Thank you. As she entered her room, she took notice of the 1 a.m. and bright red letters on her alarm clock. I should probably sleep, she thought to herself. Changing into proper sleepwear, she set her alarm for the next morning. She rolled over, almost instantly falling asleep. The clock read 4 a.m. as she awoke to silence. Her bedroom window faced directly into the entrance to the backyard giving her a clear view of the crooked and broken gate, being swung back and forth by the cold night wind. She rolled over with the intention of sleeping yet again, but was immediately disrupted by a loud bang coming from outside. She walked up to the window and just could barely see the gate through the dark. The moon cast a low level of light into her room, enough to cast a small shadow under the features on her face. Bang! The loud noise struck again, startling her. The gate slowly creaked open as she could see the silhouette of a man in the crack. She lowered herself down to the corner of the window, allowing her to see a small section of the man's legs. The man took a swift and quiet step forward, cautiously examining the interior of the room. She sank lower under the windowsill, completely out of sight. She thought about calling the police, but had realized that her phone was on the bedside table, opposite her. The shadow of the man was cast over the bed, making him appear large and intimidating. The man's shadow passed from the window, him now out of sight from her current position. She quickly walked across the room, grabbing her phone and returning to her original spot. The phone read, no service, at the top of the screen. Now panicking, she began looking for a weapon she could use to defend herself. Empty-handed from unsuccessful searching, she locked the door and curled into a ball, crying silently. Footsteps passed overhead, as he had somehow found his way into the house. She let her mind decide the fate of her parents, terror taking over every other emotion. The footsteps passed back downstairs and stopped right outside the door. 
The doorknob rattled, coming to an abrupt stop. Bang, 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 bang. The man began hitting the door, part of the wood responding to the force by bending. Bang, 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 bang. The door suddenly had a small crater in it. An eye passed over the hole, staring directly at her. A high-pitched, raspy voice exclaimed, No way out. He continued banging on the door, the hole getting bigger and bigger with each slam. He was hitting the door directly with his head. He reached through the gaping hole in the door and reached for the doorknob, unlocking and promptly turning it. He stood in the door, standing widely with an intimidating stance. He flicked on the lights, revealing a terrifying face of death. His face was rotting, a gaping hole in the side of his mouth, revealing the brown and red sores of his mouth. His jaw widened to an unnatural position, revealing long, sharp teeth stained with blood. His hands became claws, three long and bony pointed fingers dropping to the floor. She sunk lower into the corner, wanting to pretend he wasn't there. But he was most definitely there. Don't be scared. I'll make it quick. His rotten muscles tried to show a smile, but they moved the skin over his sunken black eyes. In a flash of movement, he took to making it quick, watching the life fade from her eyes. This next story is dedicated to Inner Scare Wifey. Please enjoy. The first night. It's late. The sky is black and the moon is high. There's a boiling breeze outside. My fan is on. It's too hot to have it off. My head hurts a little and my eyes are adjusting to me waking up. But I am also confused. Why am I awake? I look around, listening to the rustling of my hair against my pillow as I peer around. Is that a man in the corner? Second night. It's late again, and I have woken up. My fan is on, and the sky is dark again. It's cooler tonight, but I still like the fan on. The security of sound calms me. The shadow is back. He wears a top hat and a trench coat. What is he doing? I want to say hi, but my voice refuses to activate. I want to wave and see if he will wave back. If he does, fear will certainly take over. But I can't. I can't move at all. Third night. Maybe it's reoccurring sleep paralysis. I've had it before. But these nights feel different. My eyes darted around for him again. Where is he? Is he here? I hear him breathing next to me. I'm shaking in my frozen state. I'm scared to death. Am I going to die? There is a random man next to me in the middle of the night, and I cannot scream for help. Please, somebody, anybody, help me. Fourth night. I woke up, 
The fan is off. I can't turn it back on. I can't move again. He is there, in front of me. He's nervous. So nervous. I can hear his breath shaking and see his eyes darting around the room. But he is fixated on the closed windows. I waited a few minutes and saw him lean through the windows. He didn't open them or anything. He literally passed through the glass. Looked around the outside as if to wait for something or someone before going back and standing straight in front of me. Fifth night. I'm more used to his presence. He still frightens me slightly, but I am sure he doesn't want to hurt me. My fan is on again. The night is hot again. My covers are folded up beside my bed and he is waiting again. What is he waiting for? Sixth night. I awake to a deep voice. Wake up. I do so and see the shadow in front of my face. I can see the lack of details of his pitch black face. I can only see his eyes. His empty, eternal eyes. Do not be afraid. I hear crashing downstairs, followed by glass shattering, footsteps and multiple voices. Let's make this one quick and easy, the first one said. Oh my god, this is a home invasion. I, I, I can't run. I cannot move or anything. And this thing is still in my face. He is frozen in place. I cannot hear his breathing anymore. He has turned into rhythmic growling and gurgling. I can hear the footsteps scattering up the stairs and towards my room. I'm going to die. Please, not tonight. N not like this. He has moved his face away. He has taken his hat off and left it beside me. He turns to the source of the footsteps. He raises his arms and points to the clattering sounds. His hand is a claw of tendrils, wires of black skin twitching as his finger extends to a point. Suddenly, all I can hear is the fan, the sound growing louder and louder, and I pass out. Before I fall, I can briefly hear screaming, blood-curdling, painful screaming, and a shrilling repertoire of inhuman screeches. 9.34 a.m., it's the following morning, and I've had to call the police. I woke up and was immediately met with a sudden surge of a headache. I tried to remember what happened hours before, before I passed out. What the hell happened last night? Was that a messed up nightmare? I asked myself. It had to have been a nightmare. It wasn't. I got up from my bed and peeked through the hallway. I almost threw up. Four corpses, mutilated, missing limbs, missing faces, walls covered in blood. I called the police even though I was hesitant. I had no idea how I was going to tell the dispatcher about last night, but they knew what happened. They knew I passed out before the intruders were killed. I said I had no idea what killed them. They soon arrived at my house, and I told them my story. I don't know how to explain it, but they arrived. I felt comfortable telling them what happened. 
They wrote stuff down in their notes as I explained in as much detail as I could. Before I knew it, they were gone. Usually, when a murder in a house occurs, it takes a while. Possibly days for the scene to be cleaned up. But this was a mass murder, and it took minutes for my house to be pristine. I hesitantly made my way to my room and found nothing out of place. My fan was where it was, my desk, my computer, my folded up covers. The only thing that was unusual was a large black top hat on my bed beside the spot I sat. Out of curiosity, I picked it up and found it. The note read, Be not afraid of me the next time we meet. And as I put the note down a final time, hours later, I can hear the familiar breathing again. Ollie and Lyle consider their options. There are two. Option one, stay put at the gas station. Option two, leave the gas station. I think we should keep moving, Ollie says. They're going to find us here eventually. Lyle, who believes himself the smarter of the two, disagrees. What? Are you crazy? Don't you hear that? Those are gunshots, screams, sirens. No, sir. We boarded this place up real nice. And look at all these provisions. This place is a sanctuary, my friend. Lyle isn't necessarily smarter than Ollie, though he is a bigger coward. All right, Ollie says. But we need to have a plan in case we're found. Uh, We do have a plan, Lyle says. We've got these fire extinguishers as a distraction. Then, while they're blinded, we hit them with one of these bad boys. Lyle holds up a box of fireworks labeled Bad Boy Rockets. I used to shoot these off every fourth with my cousins. They'll take your head clean off if you're not careful. The perfect weapon, considering... Uh, considering? Considering that is all we've got, Ollie... That doesn't sound like much of a plan, dude. Oh, I suppose you have a better one. I'd like to hear it, because so far I've been doing all the thinking. Well, Ollie started, scratching his chin. I think we could try to pass. Try to pass? Yeah, there's uniforms in the back. Maybe use air freshener or even some gasoline on us to cover up the smell. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. What do you mean? I think it could work. We wouldn't have to get near anybody. Oh, hmm, they would know. How? We can talk fine, and we're not too bad looking. We're not missing anything. Nothing but a few fingers, toes, and teeth. Hmm... Lyle was giving more thought to the idea than he had anticipated. Ollie did have a point. Most of these things were pretty decrepit, missing entire limbs. They were lucky. They'd only been in the ground for a few weeks. They were hardly zombies, really. 
Okay, I'll bite. Say we do get through town, then what? Uh, then we find a car and go somewhere isolated, away from all the maniacs with guns. Ollie, I can't believe I'm saying this, but... <sighs> I think you're right. Ollie and Lyle don the uniforms and open the door. Outside is complete chaos. There's fire, gunshots, and hundreds of dead on the streets. Just act casual, Lyle says. A zombie with no jaw approaches them and moans. Hello, sir. Ollie, don't talk to the zombies. Oh, sorry. Suddenly, the zombie's head explodes. Holy shit! Hey, you! A voice yells. It's a woman with a shotgun. Uh, oh, hello. Lyle waves. Do you two need guns? Ollie and Lyle exchange looks. They nod. Uh, yes, please, Ollie says. The woman tosses a shotgun to Ollie, then to Lyle. Ollie catches his and pumps it. Lyle catches his. His arm falls off. Shit. I've been laying in bed scrolling through my phone for the past hour. At one point I heard movement behind my head, coming from inside the wall. I pictured some huge rat or bat or maybe even a raccoon was trapped in there, trying to find its way out. I live in a very old house, so there is no new insulation. Plenty of space for a whole family of opossums or who knows what. It's late. Nothing I can do about it, so I just put on a video, trying to block out the noise. Still pretty freaked out about the idea of something creeping around in the walls. Why does shit like this only ever happen when you're alone? I thought to myself. I kept hearing more shuffling sounds from behind my head. It didn't sound like claws or bat wings, just soft shuffling. It was getting on my nerves, so I banged on the wall. Something banged back. I set up right immediately, trying to convince myself I panicked, the poor creature, so it slammed into the wall, trying to run away. It's really amazing how easily we can brush things off when we don't want to feel scared. This has to be it, right? Something just ran into the wall when it heard me. That makes sense. Desperately trying to reassure myself. Frozen in place, not sure what to do or think. Damn, I wished I wasn't alone right now. I waited to see if the shuffling sounds came back. Nothing. I finally let myself calm down again, laughing at myself for being so terrified of some poor raccoon in the wall. Imagining he's just as afraid of me being trapped in there. I hope he finds his way out. After I felt like enough silence had passed, I put my video back on. I could feel myself drifting to sleep when I heard it. I heard a phone ring right behind my freaking head. It was only for a second, but that was long enough to realize there was someone hiding inside the wall of my house. 
That thin wall is the only thing separating them from me. Panic set in so fast, I just froze. I went to call 911, but I realized I didn't hear anything moving. Whoever is back there is trying to stay still, silent, hoping I'm asleep and didn't hear their phone. I do not want to let them know otherwise. Hiding under the covers, I texted the police. I've heard that's something you can do, but I haven't gotten a response. I've texted all of my friends, my parents, at least half the people, and my phone, but it's late and no one is responding. Where are the damn cops? I thought to myself. I'm trying to stay as silent as possible. I'm too scared to try to run. There has to be someone awake on here. Someone, please help me. What in the hell do I do? I got a text alert on my phone, breaking the silence as a massive hand punched through the wall, reaching out for me in the dark. He grabbed me by the hair, yanking me towards him, and he forced his way through the thin wall. I kicked and flailed in desperation, but he was on top of me before I even had a chance to get away. Completely breathless under the weight of him, I realized I was not making it out alive. My vision began to go black as he punched me repeatedly. Fight or flight kicked in, and in a sudden moment of adrenaline, I forced my thumb into his eye, pushing with all of my might until I heard a sickening popping sound. Grabbing his bloody eye socket, he leaned back, giving me just enough time to kick him as hard as I could in his most sensitive parts. He welled in pain as I ran as fast as I could out the door screaming for help. My neighbor's porch light turned on and I banged on the door until she let me in. Covered in scratches and blood, bawling my eyes out, I begged her to call the police. I stayed with my neighbor for the night while the police investigated my house. They found empty food wrappers, bottles of piss, pictures of me strung up on the inside of the wall. Pictures of me while I slept, unaware of the man who had lived in my walls for what appeared to have been months. They never found him. Now, every night I dream of that hand punching its way through the wall, playing out what might have happened had I not escaped. Every house has its crawl space, or that attic no one ever really goes in. That little space under the basement stairs or an old wall with just enough space to hide. You never know who might be lurking, creeping around your own home, watching you through a tiny little hole in the wall you'd never even have noticed. The truth is, there could be someone inside your home right now, but you would never know. Unless, of course, you suddenly... Hear a phone ring. This next story was written by a dear friend of mine. She's only 19 years old and has the most brilliant brain for horror. This one is entitled The Tale of Terror Woods, written by Rosie Rose. Please horrifically enjoy. I scoffed at the name of Terror Woods. 
Really, Kyle? Terror Woods? It's probably just some made-up story for parents to scare children. Uh, no, I, I swear it's true. A while back, my cousin and his friends went there, and out of the five of them, only two made it back. They both looked in shock and had many injuries. The woods ain't far from here, probably about an hour to an hour and a half. So how about it? Kyle replied. Okay, so even if it is true, why the hell would we go to some woods where three of your cousin's friends went missing? It's just stupid, I said. It doesn't sound all that bad, Jack pitched in. I turned to him. Seriously? You're down for this as well? well I, I mean, it sounds like a good opportunity, and if there isn't anything there, then we prove that there is nothing terrifying about Terror Woods, Jack explained. I sighed. <sighs> let me think about it overnight. I'll let you know in the morning. That seemed to satisfy them both, and they soon left for their own homes. The next morning, we all met, and I agreed to go. Glad that you agreed to go, man. It, it wouldn't have been the same without you, Kyle said. Well, I couldn't let you two dumbasses go into the woods. You'd both get lost, I replied. They both laughed. Fair point. So, I assume you both already got camping supplies, I asked. Yep. I stopped by the store before meeting up to get all the camping supplies. I already had the tents, Kyle said. I sighed. Well, let's get going. I don't want to try and search for a good campsite in the dark. We finally got to a parking space near Terror Woods and followed a trail into the woods, not knowing what awaited us. After some time down the trail, we found a nice clearing with a creek nearby. We decided to set up camp. We got a fire started and enjoyed the night out there. It's hard to believe three people went missing here. It seemed so peaceful. So, Kyle, tell us exactly what happened to your cousin and his friend, I said. Well, um, I don't know much since my cousin didn't share much information, but he claimed that a terrifying creature attacked them all at one time. I tried pressing him for more details, but he just freaked out and kicked me out of his house, Kyle explained. Man, that sounds creepy. Should we really be here? Jack expressed while looking around. I'm sure it was like a bear or cougar that attacked them. I mean, come on. It is in the woods where wildlife is behind every tree, I said. Kyle sighed. You just aren't a believer. Believe in what? That some scary creature attacked them? Yeah, no thanks. I only believe in things I can see with my own two eyes, I responded. Be careful what you wish for, Nick. It might come true, Jack said nervously. Will you stop with that? It was just a wild animal that attacked them, I said annoyed. Regardless of what it was, something attacked his cousin's friends, Jack replied. All right, all right, enough you two. I, I don't care to hear your bickering in the middle of the woods. Let's just get some sleep, Kyle said. We all agreed and went to sleep. The next morning, Jack was already up. Am I still dreaming or... Are you up early? 
I, I didn't sleep much. I kept hearing noises outside the tent, Jack replied. I laughed. <laughs> it was just the animals. Stop being a worry wart. Yeah, uh, you're right. I, I think Kyle's story got to me more than I thought, he said. I clapped him on the back. Don't worry so much. I got a pocket knife just in case. He looked at me like I was stupid. Um, no offense, Nick, but what the hell is a pocket knife going to do to a bear? My point is don't worry too much. Everything will be fine, I reassured him. He nodded his head and Kyle finally got up. Arose from the dead finally, I said. Oh, oh, so funny, he responded. Well, I think we should look around the area some. We didn't get a chance yesterday, so let's do it today, I said. All right, sure, they both said. We decided to cross the creek to see what was on the other side. The farther we walked, the more it started to smell like something was dead. It kept getting stronger the further we walked. I coughed. Ugh, what is that horrendous smell? I don't know, maybe a dead animal? Jack answered. Oh, let's keep going. Ugh, I, I want to find out what it is, Kyle said. <laughs> Are you crazy? I don't want to see a dead animal, Jack exclaimed. Or it could be something paranormal. I heard some paranormal creatures reek of the putrid smell of rotten flesh. Kyle said. I rolled my eyes. Let's go see this dead animal so we can put our crazy delusions to rest. We continued forward and soon found the source of the smell. As I had expected, it was just a dead animal. A very mutilated one at that. The head was so deformed and caved in that I couldn't tell what it was. Its guts were all over the place having certain parts of the intestines ripped apart. Whatever did that should be ashamed of itself. We couldn't stand being next to it for long and quickly went back to camp. Jack looked really sick, not that I blame him. After that, we just put it out of our minds and continued on like normal until nightfall. I could barely even sleep from the sounds coming outside the tent. I eventually dozed off, but was awakened to someone shaking my shoulder. Uh, what is it? Jack put his finger to his lips. Shh, something is outside our tent. I pulled out my pocket knife. Uh, like what? I, I, I don't know. I was too scared to look. I tried waking Kyle, but he wouldn't budge. Jack replied. Uh, all right. I said as I moved to the opening of the tent. I slowly unzipped it and froze in immediate horror. Not far from where our fire was, was a tall creature. It was grotesque. It had elongated spines that ran down the length of its back. It was extremely skinny and had rotten flesh. I could smell it from here. The smell making me want to heave. In many parts, it had exposed muscle and bone. It looked strangely human, but at the same time, it didn't. It had only a few muscles and pieces of skin that held its organs in its abdomen. 
The ribs were also visible and were dripping with blackish red blood. My blood ran cold, and I couldn't take my eyes off this damn thing. It turned its head and its eyes met mine. Like a primal instinct took over, I immediately retreated from the opening and quickly woke Kyle up. What? I cut him off. Be quiet. We need to get out of here. But be quiet. What? What is it? Kyle whispered. A monster, I said, just as the opening of our tent was ripped apart. We all screamed and I cut the back open with my knife. Run, now! We all got out and ran for our lives. Just for a little bit, it got caught up in our tent, but that did not last long. It was soon right behind us. It grabbed me from behind and lifted me off the ground. Its claws dug into my abdomen as its massively large hand held me in front of it. Kyle and Jack stood in horror, watching it slowly tighten its hand around me. I screamed once more as I felt one of my arms break. Its claws dug deeper into me, which made me bleed more. Up close, the monster was even more horrifying. The putrid smell was too much to take in. Just run! I yelled at the two below. I appeared to snap them out of their trance, but they refused to leave. Instead, they grabbed up two large limbs and hit them against the monster's legs. It screamed out in pain and loosened its hold on me a bit. I wiggled my arm with my knife out and jabbed it deep into its chest. Its nasty, putrid blood squirted out and ran down both mine and the monster's body as it hollered in pain. I wiggled my other arm out, ignoring the pain, and grabbed the knife's hilt and with my last bit of energy pulled the knife down. It sliced the few muscles it had holding its organs in place, and they began to fall out. It screamed in pain and dropped me. I felt my ankle pop wrongly as I landed. Kyle and Jack helped me up, and we ran to our car as it was focused on itself. We drove and didn't look back. And so, that is our story, officer, I said. Whatever you do... Make sure you stay alert and be careful should you go camping in the woods. As I stood amidst the burning embers of my high school, all I could think was, Good riddance. I was one of the first to get the sickness. The abdominal pain was unbelievable. 14 out of 10 on the pain scale. It felt like someone had set a rabbit rat loose to run amok through my intestines, gnawing its way through my kidneys, then drag my raw, bleeding internal organs out of my esophagus. Not fun at all, I say. The shunning started a couple days before my month-long hospital stay ended. That's when my parents and siblings suddenly stopped coming to visit. The hospital staff even took me from my nice room and shoved me in a dark hole somewhere. I wound up walking home, where my family refused to either look at or speak to me. I didn't care. They'd abandoned me. 
I didn't want to talk to them either. Fortunately, I've never been popular, and I've generally been okay with that. So, when I returned to school, I didn't mind that the others shunned me. Then, some other students who'd gotten sick started to return. They didn't take the shunning as nicely as I did. Take Beth Roberts, for instance. She'd been one of the popular girls. She went absolutely nuts when they shunned her. One day, I found her sitting on her friend's desk, screaming into her face. The friend didn't even flinch. This angered Beth so much that she stormed out and pushed one of the former cheerleading teammates, Gina Francis, down the second floor stairwell. Gina was in a body cast for a month. The thing that hurt the most was how I was shunned by my beloved teachers. I was always a good student. I deserve better. One incident during finals week really stands out clear to me. My favorite English teacher, Mrs. Stellan, angrily shushed the class, then held up the essay exam I had written and shook it viciously at the class, demanding, Who wrote this? Did you get a good laugh, you sicko? I didn't claim it, of course, but I don't know why she was asking since I'd put my name on it. We, the shunned, could only take so much of this treatment. One Wednesday night, we met on the football field. Although we didn't do much talking, we were in complete agreement. When we went to school the next day, we were gonna mess that place up. Windows were broken, tires slashed, lunches torn from hands and thrown across the cafeteria. Crowds of kids were pushed downstairs and others were tossed over railings. That day. Still, no one said a word to us. We did this for a month. One weekend, there were huge trucks full of salt, pouring out long white lines of the stuff in intricate patterns around the school. For some reason, the shunned can't cross them. Priests were involved. There was a lot of chanting. The principal lit the match. Good riddance. I always played in the attic at Granny's house. As a child, I loved playing with my dad's old toys. I pushed plastic cars around the floor, my hands black with dust. Now I just come up here to look at everything everyone's left behind. In the corner of the attic was a small dresser. I pulled out each of the stiff drawers and glanced inside. The top two held nothing special, but the bottom one was filled to the brim with loose photographs. I sat down on the floor and grabbed a handful. The majority were faded childhood snapshots of my dad and uncles from the 70s. I smiled at the mop of brown hair he used to have, the bell-bottoms they all wore. I dipped my hand in again and again, pulling out more and more photos. I studied each of them. The closer I got to the bottom of the drawer, the more black and white photos emerged. I saw my grandmother, long before she was married, as beautiful as a pinup. There were lots of shots of her with an older sister, Great Aunt Helena, 
elegantly draped in furs. I didn't know the two had lived together after our great-grandfather died. Finally, at the very bottom of the drawer, I came across an unmarked envelope. Inside the envelope was a handful of very small, brittle photographs. The top one showed my grandmother in her early teens with a slightly older Aunt Helena. The next photo featured a man in a chair. He looked familiar, possibly a relative. I flipped through them. There were multiple shots of him in the chair, all with Aunt Helena. But there was something odd about them. They had staged quality about them that seemed unnatural. I frowned and held one of the pictures up close to my face. Holy shit, I said, flinging the pictures down on the ground. I had been right. They were posed. From what I could tell, he was tied to the chair. Helena had started small, cutting off an ear here, a finger there, holding each grisly trophy up. Then they got worse. The next few showed a hat pin in each eye, a slit on the face, a bloody stump where a foot should have been. Each photo was progressively worse than the last until Helena was posing with a corpse. Dumbfounded, I gathered them up and went downstairs. I felt sick. My grandmother was sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee. I held out the envelope. Who is this? She took the grimy photos from my hand and thumbed through them. After a moment, she handed them back to me. Someone who hasn't hurt little girls in a long, long time. Shocked, I stared blankly at the tiny snapshots. I was still confused. Did you know about these? Well, of course. She paused. I was the one holding the camera. And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these hordes of scary stories. If you're sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves. I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night. Peace, love, and light to you all.